you uh, you have a Bible on you, go ahead and turn to uh, the book of James. We're in James chapter 2 today. And we're going to be looking at uh, verses 8 through 13 uh, of chapter 2. So just to give you a little bit of a context uh, for where we're at today, in case you were unable to be with us last week, um, James starts out chapter 2 by giving this exhortation. He says in James chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to give this example of what he's talking about. And the example that he uses uh, is if two men walk into a church service, one of them uh, obviously a wealthy man, one of them obviously a poor man based on the way that they're dressed. Uh, and if you show favoritism towards the man uh, who's obviously a rich man and uh, ignore the man who's obviously poor, James says that that's not good. That should not be uh, in the church. That should not happen uh, we shouldn't have an environment uh, as Christians where we favor one person over another. And so when he gives us his exhortation to show no partiality, he says, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's pitting against one another partiality and holding faith in Christ. And he's saying that these two things are mutually exclusive. In other words, they don't exist in the same universe, or they shouldn't exist in the same universe. And why is it that James is making such a big deal of this, right? Isn't it our human inclination? We, we gravitate towards people that are like us, typically, right? Um, we, we don't gravitate often towards people who are not like us. Um, so, so it's part of kind of how we're wired as human beings. Uh, but James is making kind of a big deal of this. And he actually calls it sin uh, to show partiality or to show favoritism to one person over another. It's not compatible with holding faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he calls Jesus the Lord of glory because he's the one who is exalted. He's the one who's worthy. He's the one who's worthy of exaltation because he redeems us from our brokenness. He redeems us from our sinfulness. And if my story is that God has redeemed me and rescued me from a life of sin leading to death, and if your story is that God has redeemed you and rescued you from your sin leading to death, then who are we to look down upon anybody or show favoritism towards anybody? Right? We, we all are equal in that we need the redeeming love of Christ. And if you've experienced God's redeeming love, we're all equal in that He has redeemed us. And so who are we to make distinctions uh, among ourselves uh, of who is better than another? So that's kind of what we covered last week. And then as we pick it up today in verse 8 of chapter 2, James says this. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And so what is this royal law that he's talking about? Uh, he's, he's pulling this idea from the book of Leviticus chapter 19. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read to you uh, a few verses, Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 16. And this is what the writer says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall reap your field. You shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. 
You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord your God. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear God. I am the Lord your God. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So think about this. Based on those verses that we just read, I might ask the question, who is it that is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? When, when I say, or when the Bible says to love your neighbor, are you thinking about the people that live on either side of you and, and across the street from you? In a biblical sense, your neighbor is, is pretty much everybody, just to keep it really simple. Your neighbor is everybody, right? Not just people that you know, not just the people that live next to you, but your neighbor is everybody. And so when the Bible says love your neighbor, you could actually take that word neighbor and just substitute it for people. Love people, right? Love everybody. And James says that when you do this, that you're doing well. In other words, that this is God's design for humanity. This is God's good and perfect design that we would love our neighbor. Now, we have to do a little bit of work to define love, and we, just, we don't have time to, to fully get into this today. But, but what do you think of when, when you think of the word love? Do you think of maybe romantic feelings that you have for your spouse? Do you think of the feelings that you have maybe towards your children or other family members or close friends. Right? When we think about love, we have to define love based on the context of who God is and God's character. And the Bible tells us not just that God is loving, but that God is love. There's a distinction to be made there. God is not just loving. God is love, and in fact, He's the embodiment of love. God's character and God's disposition towards humanity defines for us perfectly what love is. God loved us when we were still sinners. Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved us in our unloveliness, in our rebellion against Him. He loved us. Some, some people have called this a, a one-way love, that God loves us without necessarily a demand that we reciprocate that love back to Him. God doesn't love us because we love Him. God loves us because He chooses to. And the Bible says that the only reason that we love him is that he first loved us because he initiated to us then we love him and so when the bible says to love your neighbor when james says to love your neighbor as yourself this is doing well he's talking about loving your neighbor the way that god loves you 
And if we could just figure that out, then this whole idea of partiality or favoritism wouldn't be much of an issue in the church. A few verses prior to this in James 1.25, he writes that the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Again, God's perfect design for humanity is that we would love one another. The Bible tells us that we should look out for the interests of others above our own. Think about that. Does that rub you the wrong way to hear that? Right? We, we live in a culture, we live in a world that says like it's all about you. You first. Me first. But the Bible says... Look out for the interests of others before you look out for your own interests. And the reason the Bible tells us to do that is because, again, this is kind of the way that God loves us. God looks out for us when we don't deserve for Him to look out for us. Galatians 6.10 says that as you have opportunity to do good to everyone, there's no qualifiers there, there's no ambiguity there, do good to everyone especially, the Apostle Paul writes, to those who are of the household of faith. So do good to everyone, all people, everywhere, all of the time. But especially pay attention to those with whom you fellowship. Especially pay attention to brothers and sisters in Christ as you have opportunity to do good. Jesus tells us that there's one way in particular that the world will know who the followers of Christ are. And do you know what that is? The, the one way in particular that the world will know who the followers of Christ are are the way that Christ's followers love each other. Jesus tells us that the world should look into the church and see the way that you all care for one another and they should see something about who God is based on that example. Jesus kind of boils it down for us in Mark chapter 12. I know I'm throwing a lot of verses at you here, but I'm trying to paint a picture for us. In Mark 12, 29 to 32, some people came to Jesus and they asked him a question. They said, well, what's the most important law? Right? The, the Jewish people, they were all about their laws. If we back up all the way into the book of Exodus, God gave the Jewish people ten commandments. Ten Commandments, and it didn't take very long before those Ten Commandments were turned into over 600 laws that the Jewish people developed. And so as a, as a good Jewish person, in antiquity, you would not only have to be responsible to know the 600 plus laws, but also to abide by them. And so they asked Jesus one day, what, what's the most important? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. So Jesus, as he often did when the Pharisees tried to stumble him, gives the perfect answer to their question. What's, what's the most important rule that we should follow? Love God with, with your entire being, everything you have, and love 
your neighbor as yourself. How much do you love you? Has anybody ever asked you that? You probably love yourself a lot. We, we all do, right? I think I mentioned last week, for me, I'm the best person that I know, and you're probably the best person that you know, and we love ourselves tremendously. We, we take care of ourselves. We, we make sure that we're fed. We make sure that we're clothed. We make sure that we have whatever amenities in life that we need. Right? There's not a person on this planet that doesn't in some way take care of themselves. And, and Jesus tells us to love your neighbor the way that you would love you. And Jesus says that when you love God with everything you have, when you love your neighbor the way that you would love yourself, this sums up the entirety of the law. Those Ten Commandments that turned into 600 plus. Loving God with everything, loving your neighbor as yourself, it sums it all up into kind of two big things. And again, James is saying if, if we can manage this, that, that we're doing well. In other words, we're living in God's world according to God's rules. Then he goes in verse 9 and he says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so James is pitting against one another this idea of partiality and the idea of fulfilling the royal law of loving God and loving everyone. And he just flat out calls it a sin. If you show partiality, if you show favoritism, in other words, if you judge people by the outside, if you judge the books by their cover, James says you're committing sin and you're convicted as a transgressor. So at the end of the day, what James is driving at is that partiality is equal to sin and we know that sin leads to conviction and leads ultimately to a spiritual death as a breaker of the law. Why is it again that favoritism or partiality is so bad for the Christian? We tend to classify people in, in different ways, and, and this is a little bit of kind of catch-up from last week as well. So, for example, we, we classify people in our society as rich or poor. We classify people as attractive or unattractive, talented or untalented, intelligent or unintelligent, good or bad. The list can go on and on and on. But we classify people in various ways. But the Bible doesn't classify people the way that we classify people. The Bible classifies all of humanity as broken and in need of redemption. The Bible classifies all of humanity as sinners in need of a Savior. We're, we're told in the book of Romans that as humans we actually invent evil. We, we invent new ways all of the time to rebel against our Creator. Romans chapter 3 tells us that Every single person who's ever walked the planet has fallen short of God's perfect standard. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that because this is true, that we're all on a path apart from the intervention of Christ that, that will lead us to a spiritual death. So the Bible really only makes one distinction of humanity, broken and sinful, in need of Christ's intervention. So when we show favoritism as redeemed followers of Christ, we're showing that in, in those moments that we've forgotten the truth of the gospel, that, that God has done for you and for me the things that we could and would never do for ourselves. We have forgotten 
in our partiality that God has, has redeemed us as sinful human beings and that He has bestowed upon us His righteousness. And so it doesn't make sense for a follower of Christ or the one who claims to be a follower of Christ to make the distinctions of people that the world makes, such as rich or poor, intelligent, unintelligent, talented, untalented, etc., etc. So James exhorts us to fulfill the royal law of loving God and loving people saying that we'll do well. He's reminding us that if we live any other way, if we live in a way that shows favoritism to one over another, that, that we're just flat out committing a sin and that we are guilty of breaking the law as transgressors. Then he goes on in verse 10 to say that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, why does James go here? You might, like me on first read, be thinking about, okay, maybe I've never committed adultery, maybe I've not committed murder. I haven't committed kind of the big ones, right? I know that I'm a sinner, and I sin on a daily basis, but I haven't done the big ones, right? But why does he use these as an example? Here's what I think James is talking about. That when we break the law of God, whatever it is, whether you've committed the big ones or not, when we break the law of God, the Bible tells us that we're actually rebelling against the lawgiver. We're rebelling against God Himself. And so, if you break any part of the law, you're a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter if you've broken the big ones. It doesn't matter if, if you've only done the little ones through your life. If you break any part of the law, James is telling us, you can't say, well, I've, I haven't done this one. Even though I've done these, I haven't done this one. If you've broken any part of the law whatsoever, according to God's holiness and God's righteousness, according to God's perfection, you, you are a breaker of the law. You are a transgressor. And there's a penalty for that transgression. There's a penalty that comes. That sounds like bad news, but it's not all bad news. Here's what the law of God reveals to us about who God is. So based on what we've already covered, we can see that, that not only is God loving, but God is love. We see in the law of God, it reveals to us the character of God. So when we're told things like, don't murder, don't commit adultery, when we're told things like, don't show partiality. And that passage in Leviticus that we read, it had a lot of don'ts in it, right? Our, our tendency as Christians is to kind of make the Christian life about this list of rules that we have to follow. And, and please don't hear that today. That's not what we're trying to drive home today. The Christian faith is not about keeping a list of rules. But in the law that God gives us, we see God's character. We see that God's heart is that we would love people as much as we can in the way that He loves people. God is not a curmudgeon sitting on His heavenly throne pointing the finger at everybody saying, okay, why can't these people follow the rules? Why can't they toe the line? Why can't they get it together? God is love. And when God tells us, live this way and don't live these ways, 
It's not because he's an enforcer trying to put rules upon us that we have to worry about following every day. It's because that he loves us and he's telling us live these ways and don't live these ways because this is my design for human flourishing. When you would love one another as a reflection of my love for you. This is how humanity can flourish. In fact, it's the only way that humanity can flourish is when we live in God's world according to God's design. Does that make sense? And so we see in this law of God of, of uh, not showing partiality, we see in the royal law of looking out for the interests of others, we see in this command to love your neighbor as yourself not as a burdensome thing to do, not as a rule to follow, not something that we have to worry about every day, did I, did I fulfill the law today? But we see this because of who God is. God's designed for our own good and our own benefit and our own flourishing. What one author calls this idea the freedom of self-forgetfulness. You probably don't realize, just like I don't realize, how much you think about yourself in a given day. You probably don't realize how many things you do and how many things you say in a given day are based upon your own self-preservation. And I can tell you that that's, that's a hard way to live when every day is about you. When every day, every moment, everything you think about, everything you say is about you, that's a, that's a difficult way to live. The Bible shows us that when we can live in a way where we forget about ourselves and we consider the needs of others over and above ourselves, there's a freedom that comes with that. There's a freedom in forgetting about me. There's a freedom in considering the good of others and considering the benefit of others that we don't experience when we are the center of our own universes. James goes on in verse 12 and 13. He says, in light of all of this, in light of the exhortation to love your neighbor as yourself, in light of the idea that showing partiality is sinful behavior that leads to death, he says in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what is this law of liberty? It says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? In other words, what is this idea of the freedom of self-forgetfulness? The same author that said that, Tim Keller, he says this, a fish, because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it's free only if it's restricted to the water. If a fish is freed from the river and put on the grass to explore its freedom uh, to explore its freedom to move and soon live is destroyed. So the idea of this is that, again, when we live in God's world according to God's design, at first thought that might seem restrictive. When God says, live this way, don't live in these ways. That, that seems restrictive. But like the fish, the fish is only free as long as it lives in the water because it was designed to live in the water. If the fish tries to live outside of the water and explore the rest of the world, it's not going to take very long before that fish ceases to live. 
So this idea of the law of liberty is that we live again in God's world according to God's design. And so let me give you a biblical example of this. Matthew chapter 18, there's a parable that Jesus talks about regarding an unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, 23, it says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And so to say that this servant owed 10,000 talents to the king, this is an insurmountable amount of money. This would be like somebody today saying that you owe them a jillion dollars. Like it's just it's a, a fictitious sum of money that's so vast that you can't even count it. And that's what this servant owed. And the king demanded payment. And the servant fell on the king's mercy and said, please forgive me. And out of pity, the master released him and he forgave him the debt. And this, this is a picture of, of the kind of king that our God is. We owe a debt because of our sin and because of our brokenness that, that we could never pay. And God in his mercy takes pity on us and he shows us forgiveness. But this parable goes on to say this. But when that same servant, the one who was forgiven, when he went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a real minuscule amount of money. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. And he said, have patience with me and I will pay you. And the first servant refused. And he went and put the second servant in prison until he should pay the debt. You see the disconnect here? See the disconnect of the first servant being forgiven a debt that he could never pay in many lifetimes. And upon being forgiven, he goes out and he finds somebody who owes him just a little bit of money. And he shakes him down and says, pay what I owe and I'm going to throw you in jail. So we see kind of these contrasting pictures of the kind of king that our God is. And we see the contrast of the kind of people that we are. Right? These are the kind of people that you and I are. When James says that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, this is kind of what he's talking about here. When we're the kind of people that, that don't extend grace to others, it's because, again, we've forgotten in those moments about the truth of the gospel and what God has done for us. When we live in this manner, it's antithetical to the gospel. It's the opposite of the gospel. And so what James isn't saying is that if you're mean to people, God's going to be mean to you. He's not saying that. He's saying that when, when you don't understand the gospel, when you don't believe the gospel enough to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, there's a disconnect there and you're in danger of not believing the gospel. The parable goes on to say that when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. And then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And again, what's not being said here is that you have to forgive other people so that God will forgive you. This is not a quid pro quo. It's not a this for that. That's not the message here. The message here is that as people who have submitted their lives to the truth of the gospel, then we should live according to the gospel. And if you don't live according to the gospel, it could be that you don't believe what you think you might believe. So so the problem at the end of the day is not a behavioral problem. The problem at the end of the day is, is a problem of belief. And if we've not come to an understanding of the truth of the gospel, of of who God is and what Christ has done for us and who we are in light of those things, then we're in danger of not believing the gospel. But the good news that James reminds us of is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Our God is a God who forgives. If we confess our sins to Him, He's faithful and He's just and He'll forgive us our trespasses against Him. The message of the Bible is a message that says repent and believe. Repent of your sin. In order to repent of your sin, you have to realize that that you are a broken human being. That you are sinful to your core. And that you don't have an ability in and of yourself to fix that problem. The solution to that problem is a solution that lies outside of you. If I could fix my own brokenness, I would have no need of Christ. If you could fix your own brokenness, you would have no need of Christ. But because we're powerless to fix our own brokenness, God stepped into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And He came to do for us the things that we could never do for ourselves. He came to fix our brokenness. He came to take away our sins. He came to make us new so that we could have life, that we could have life in Him. We see at the cross that the intersection of justice and mercy. Because God is holy, because He's righteous, because He's just, because He's pure, and because we're not, we're not those things, We're unholy, we're unjust, we're unrighteous, we're far from pure. Because those things are true of us and because those things are true of God, God cannot not punish sin. If there were no punishment for sin, God would not be just. Think about as parents, if if you never punished your children when they did wrong things, you wouldn't be considered a very good parent, would you? We don't punish our kids because we're mean or because we don't like them. We punish our kids and we discipline our kids because we love them. Because we care for them. Because we want what's best for them. Well, that's a lot like who God is. Only he's, he's better at it than we are. God, God is merciful if we confess our sins to him. He will forgive our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 16-21 The Apostle Paul says that from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, 
the new has come. All of this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling to the world himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In, in other words, because of who Christ is and what he's done for us, he's taken the old away and he's made us a new creation for those who have submitted our lives to him. For those who have repented and believed, he's made you new. And as a new creation, he's given you a mission. And he's given you this, this ministry of reconciliation. As ones who have been reconciled to God, it's now incumbent upon you and I to go out into the world and let others know how they can be reconciled to God. Therefore, the Apostle Paul says, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If all of this is true, if all of this is true, then it doesn't make sense that we would show favoritism or partiality towards anybody, anywhere. If I'm a broken sinner and God has done for me in Christ the things I could and would never do for myself, who are we to show partiality to anyone in light of the Gospel? And so don't read this section in James as James putting rules on you. Be nice to people. Be kind to everyone. Love everyone. James is giving us a reminder that in light of the Gospel, it doesn't make sense. If you've come to true faith in Christ and true belief in the Gospel, it doesn't make sense that we would look down on anyone. No matter how our society would classify people or distinguish one person from another. And so be reminded today, you guys, of what Christ has done for you. Be reminded of His redeeming work in your life, His cleansing you from your sin, His faithfulness to forgive you as you confess. And as you remember that, understand that you are now an ambassador for Christ sent out into the world to take that message to those who don't yet know it. That's why we exist. If this stuff wasn't, if that part wasn't in the Bible, there would be no reason for the Christian to exist on the earth. There would be no reason that we wouldn't just be transported to heaven the moment that we come to faith. Except that this is here. This is here, our God-given mission to take the message of reconciliation out into the world. Not to go out into the world and say, I like you and I don't like you. Not to go out into the world and say, I'll hang with you but not you. But to go out into the world and to love everyone that God puts in our path, so much so that we would let everybody know the work of Christ that He's done for them. And that if they repent, and if they believe, that they can become part of our family and join us in that mission of taking the message out into the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful. Thankful that You love us. Thankful that You've done for us things that we could never do for ourselves. Thankful that you are faithful and thankful that you're just. Thankful that you're merciful, that we can come to you in our sinfulness and we can confess and we can repent. Thankful that you grant us repentance, that you grant us faith. That not only do you command us to live in certain ways, but you give us the ability to live in those ways as well.
So, Father, today I pray that we would be reminded of the truth of the gospel and that we would be characterized as people who are loving because our God is loving. Pray that we would be characterized as people who love well, that we would be characterized as people who uh, accept those around us, especially those who are not like us. Pray that you would help us as we do that so that we can not only preach the gospel in the words that we say and in the songs that we sing, but that we could proclaim the truth of the gospel in the way that we live and the way that we treat others, the way that we care for others. And so that we would not only share the gospel in word, but that we would share the gospel also in deed. And we ask it in Christ's name.